Lord, we're so thankful for you and for this opportunity to gather here in your name. We each bring something different into this room. Um, I pray that even in these moments, as we bring what we bring, we know that you receive us as we are and that you love us as we are and you know what we go through. Open our hearts to receive your word this morning that it might produce in us life and that life might extend not only to us but to those around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So this morning we're starting a new sermon series on the Gospel of John. It's actually a continuation of our sermon series from the fall when we covered the first four chapters of John. At that time, our focus was on Jesus's initial call to men and women to become his disciples, to become his followers. So we called that series, Come and See, and you guys remember the last word? Stay. Yeah, come and see and stay, right? Come see, stay with Jesus for the long haul. When we get to John chapter 5, like we get today, the theme expands, the themes expand in the gospel. And we're calling this second series, Signs and Wonders, Signs and Wonders, which will walk us all the way through John chapter 11. The signs and wonders we encounter in these chapters aren't just miracles for the sake of miracles. They're signs. And just like all signs, they say something to us. A stop sign tells us when to stop. A, when the buds on leaves begin to appear on a tree, it tells us it's a sign. Oh, look, our slides working. It's a sign that spring might be here or might be close. Uh, a cough is a sign that you might be getting sick. The signs in these chapters say something about Jesus, and they also say something about us. Sometimes they're really hopeful signs, and sometimes they're warning signs. But always these signs are pretty complex signs that we need to do some work to unpack. So each week in this series, we're going to unpack the signs and wonders to understand what are they saying, in addition to just being miraculous events. Like, what are these events saying to us about Jesus and about us? This morning, Madison just read a section of John chapter 5. I'm going to cover the whole chapter, which is 47 verses. She only read 23 of those verses, but they do a good job of setting up the scene of the, what's happening in this um, chapter. And can I just tell you something unexpected about this chapter? John chapter 5 is the scene of a crime. For real, it's the scene of a crime. Cue the suspenseful criminal music. No, we don't have Okay, we don't have that. Technical difficulty. We would have had that. Just kidding. We don't have that at all. Um, a crime was committed, okay, in this chapter. It was then discovered, and then a charge was brought against the suspect, and then that suspect defends himself against accusations. And then at the very end of this whole chapter, there's a twist that no one was really expecting. So be on the lookout for that. But for now, let's start back at the beginning, the crime that was committed. Only it doesn't seem like much of a crime to us. In fact, to us, it just seems like a miracle. First, Jesus shows up at this pool where it says in verse 3, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on porches. This is actually, I'll show you a picture of Bethesda. We actually have Bethesda today. We can see what it looks like. A man has been lying there for 38 years. We find out a few verses later that he lies there in the hopes that when the waters of the spring bubble up, he can get into the water, that someone will carry him into the water so that he can be healed. The idea that natural springs have healing properties was common both in the ancient world and even today. Here's Bethesda today. Uh, these sort of caverns at the bottom are where water would have been. Um, this man's hope rests on being able to get into that water quickly, actually first, so that he can be the one to benefit from the healing waters. We learn that he's unable to do that on his own, which leads us to believe that perhaps his legs don't work properly. Perhaps he's paralyzed from an accident or a disease. And keep in mind, there's no wheelchairs. There's no resources for paraplegics to move. He had to be carried, or he had to crawl on his hands. His hands would have been rough and torn. And don't miss his suffering and his isolation. They would have been extreme, especially in this community. He would have been a step below the poorest of the poor. And 38 years is a very long time. 38 years is a very long time. 38 years ago, I was playing with musclemen 
You guys remember that? Do you remember Musselman? I was playing with Musselman with my brothers. Um, this was like the toy that entertained me for hours. Uh, 38 years is a long time ago, right? As evidenced by no one would play with these today. 38 years. And every time the water starts to bubble, someone beats him to the pool. Until Jesus. He doesn't have to go get to Jesus first. Jesus goes past everyone else and goes and finds him and asks him, would you like to get well? And the man protests. He's, I can't get to the water. Someone always beats me. Jesus says, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man does. It's a miracle. It's a sign. It's a wonder. And it's a crime. Verse 9, this miracle happened on the Sabbath. And this is the tension in this story. It's not the healing itself, but the fact that the healing took place on Sabbath, a protected day, a holy day, a sacred day. Sabbath started at Friday, on Friday at sundown and ended Saturday at sundown, a full 24-hour period of rest, of feasting, of celebrating, of reverence for the Lord. Keeping Sabbath was a vital component of Jewish identity and culture. To tell people how to keep the Sabbath, oral laws of the time outlined 39 categories of work that were forbidden to do on the Sabbath. And with, within each of those 39 categories, there was a list of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. If you did them, you were breaking Sabbath, violating God's laws. It was like saying, I don't care about God, which would have been unthinkable at the time to say. When the man picked up his mat, his bed, and he carried it away, he was breaking one of those components of Sabbath. Moving your bed from one type of space into a different type of space was one of the things that was on the list. So the Jewish leaders came at him in response. Instead of, hey man, you're walking, that's amazing. They're like, hold up, what makes you think you can do this on the Sabbath? His answer is one that I hear almost every day at my house. Don't look at me, that guy made me do it. It's not my fault, I was just doing what he told me to do. So follow-up question, where is it? Okay, so where is this guy? Well, that's the problem, I don't know where he is and I didn't catch his name, so I can't help you which is where the story would have ended, right? Except Jesus went out of his way to find this same guy again at the temple. Clearly, none of this is random or coincidence. Jesus isn't done with him yet. Verse 14, Jesus finds him in the temple. Hey, you're better. <laughs> so stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you, which is a pretty confusing statement. Jesus seems to be making a connection between the man's sin and his physical condition. We don't have a lot of information about this man's condition, if he was born that way or maybe he got injured at some point in his life. We do know, I think, from experience, that our choices impact our physical well-being. If we do or say something disruptive, unhealthy, harmful, it can hurt us, and it can hurt those around us. And it can leave scars on our bodies, and it can leave scars on others, physical marks or psychological marks that don't often go away fully unless Jesus heals us, which is exactly what he's done for this man. He's healed his body. And when Jesus says, stop sinning or something even worse may happen, he's getting at healing the man's soul too, I think. He's healed his body. Now he's addressing the man's heart, his choices, his behavior, his attitudes. And I'm tempted to dig even deeper into whatever link exists between sin and physical suffering right now. But Katie reminded me in the sermon editing process this week that we're going to come back to this idea in John chapter 9 when Jesus heals a blind man. And a core part of that story is the question, why is this man the way that he is? Did he sin? Maybe his parents sinned? So bookmark that question here and trust that we'll get back to it in a few weeks. I'm happy to talk about it also after the service.
Okay, so during the second encounter, the man remembers, I guess, to ask Jesus what his name is. So he knows Jesus' identity. And in a move that kind of surprises me, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed him. So I was like, you didn't want to keep that detail to yourself? Like, no, he just goes like right away and tells the authorities and spills the beans. Thanks for that, my friend. Um, so he does tell the authorities, and then they all know who Jesus is. So to put it all together, a crime has been committed. Now a suspect has been identified. Now we move into prosecution. Like the charges have been brought to Jesus. And Jesus is going to defend himself against those charges. Here's how he defends himself in verse 17. He says, my father is always working, and so am I. And then they want to kill him. Because Jesus has just done something even worse than breaking Sabbath. By saying that God is my father, he is making himself equal to God, and they understand that. But Jesus is just getting warmed up. Verse 19, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. So this is where I think understanding historical context is important. This logic would have made complete sense to a person living in the first century in Jerusalem, but we need to do a little work to unpack it. And it involves the relationships between fathers and sons. Often in the ancient world, sons were trained by their fathers to take over the family business. If the dad made toys, for example, then the son would be trained to make toys as well. So imagine a son learning from his father, mimicking his father's every move. He doesn't branch out on his own. He doesn't work independently. He's not self-initiating. He's, he's always being directed by somebody else, kind of the way that my kids like to do directed drawings on YouTube. They do what they see being done, right? They mimic it. The son is doing what he sees the father doing. He's imitating the father. This is the defense that Jesus throws out there. Whatever the father does, the son also does. So let's complete the logic as it relates to the Sabbath. You see, there was consensus at the time among rabbis that God himself didn't keep the Sabbath. Because if God stopped working, then the whole world would collapse and fall apart. So God is always working. God is always sustaining creation. God is always keeping all of us alive. God doesn't take days off from doing that. So God doesn't break Sabbath. Or God is the one that can break Sabbath. He doesn't keep Sabbath. The one being in the whole universe that has that power and ability and authority is God. If God can break the Sabbath, then so can the Son. You see, sometimes laws, even good ones that were created to bring justice and provide life for us, get so messed up and misinterpreted that they become evil tools used to prevent justice and take away life. And sometimes God's got to come in and set and break the rules in order to set things right again so that no one gets confused about who God is, and no one gets confused about what God stands for, and no one gets confused about who God loves. It's a pretty incredible defense Jesus is making. He's saying that every single right, power, privilege, and activity that God can do, he can also do. Like God, he can break the Sabbath. Verse 21, like God, he has authority over life itself. Verse 22, like God, he has absolute authority to judge the world. 23, he deserves the same honor that God deserves. Jesus is being so super clear here. Whatever power God has, he has. Whatever honor God gets, he gets. If you've got a problem with Jesus, then you've actually got a problem with God. It's a pretty bold claim, right? It's the kind of claim that gets you chased out of town or chained up in a cell or put up on a cross. But what if it's true? 
In Jewish law, for a testimony to be considered true, you needed to be corroborated by two witnesses. So Jesus, the Son of God, calls not two witnesses, but five. This is the last part of chapter five, and I'm going to summarize it quickly. Here are the witnesses that Jesus calls in his defense. First, he calls God himself. Pretty solid witness, I think. Jesus says that God has given him testimony in his own heart so that he knows who he is. Next, he calls John the Baptist, famous John the Baptist. We've talked about a couple times already in this series. Everyone knew that he had declared Jesus to be the Son of God. Then he calls them to witness his own works, like the things that he's done himself. Like, look at everything I've done, the miracles, the signs and wonders that I've completed and that I'm going to continue to do until I go all the way to the cross for the greatest miracle of all. Look at these works. Fourth, he calls the Holy Scriptures themselves, which these men knew backwards and forwards. They had diligently studied the Scriptures, we read. They spent so much time memorizing it and studying it, and those Scriptures themselves provided evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. And finally, last, Jesus calls Moses. He calls Moses, the hero of the Jewish faith, core to their identity, the one who freed them from slavery and delivered God's laws from on high and who led them into the Promised Land. Moses is Jesus' closing statement. Verse 46, if you really believed Moses, then you would believe me because he wrote about me, Jesus says. The defense rests. I told you there was a twist. In the middle of all of that, there was a twist. The tables were turned and Jesus started direct questions at them instead of just answering questions himself. If the Jewish leaders are so smart, if they know the scriptures, if they revere Moses, if they police the Sabbath, if they are experts on God, why don't they recognize God when he's right in front of them? If they're the experts, why don't they see him? Jesus tells us why. They don't accept Jesus, he says in verse 42, because they don't have the love of God in them. They don't have the love of God in them. And Jesus is not saying this to addicts or criminals or promiscuous people. He's saying this to religious leaders. He's saying it to the people who seem to love God the most, the most religious, the most about, the most holy, the most righteous people, the people who take their faith more seriously than anyone else does, the churchgoers, the tithers, the pastors, the elders, the teachers, the worship leaders, the ones who wave the flags and wear the T-shirts and have the bumper stickers, and hold the signs. Jesus wasn't the only one on trial. They were also on trial. Verse 43, Jesus said, I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. I've come to you in my Father's name, and you've rejected me. Here's what stops me cold when I read this. They were devoted to rules and laws and practices that they thought were bringing them closer to God, and yet those very rules, laws, and practices were the things that kept them from seeing God. I mean, God came, and they prosecuted him for breaking their religious laws. They would be the ones who would crucify the Son of God and call it being faithful. From our vantage point, it's pretty easy to point our fingers at those religious leaders and say they're bad and tell ourselves that we would never be like them. We would never practice an empty faith. We would never miss Jesus or accuse him of doing something we didn't agree with. 
We would never seek our own power or glory or comfort. We would never use religious laws to control people or keep them from meeting Jesus and being healed. We would never leverage our understanding of Scripture to condemn others as sinful. We would never withhold compassion and love from those who so clearly need it. Maybe we would. Signs always have a message. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, and it was a warning. It was a warning to religious people who care about God and care about doing what's right. Jesus is trying to warn them, us, that we can get so used to our customs and our rules and our way of doing things that we miss God and we misrepresent God. I recently read an article about Fred Rogers, better known as Mr. Rogers. He died almost 20 years ago, but his popularity remains. In 2018, a documentary was made about his life called Won't You Be My Neighbor? It became the highest grossing biographical documentary of all time. In 2019, a movie was made about Mr. Rogers' relationship with a journalist named Tom Juneau, and this movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, received critical praise. Tom Hanks portrayed Rogers and people, I think he was nominated for an Academy Award. I've seen both films, they're both excellent. In the article that I read, which was written in 2019 by that same man, Tom Juneau, he writes that even after all these years, Mr. Rogers has been gone 20 years, people still come to him and ask him what Mr. Rogers would have said about the way our world has turned out. What would Mr. Rogers have said about Donald Trump or Twitter wars or mass shootings or George Floyd or the war in Ukraine? What advice would he have given about the hatred that we see between Democrats and Republicans? What would he have said about vaccinations and masks and lockdowns? What would Mr. Rogers have said or done? What advice would he have given us? And Juno noted there, there was like a fierce longing for someone to give us answers. Why Mr. Rogers? Why turn to this guy? Because Fred Rogers wasn't playing a character on TV. He was being himself. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister. And he decided that children needed a show on TV to teach them kindness and decency, to show them that it was okay to be scared and it was okay to have really big feelings. He didn't shy away from hard topics. He talked about justice, and he talked about racial discrimination. He talked about sadness, and he talked about being alone, and he talked about death. He did a, he was retired, but they called him back and asked him to do a special on 9-11 after it happened to help us navigate our way through the trauma of that event. He helped kids feel safe. He helped people feel safe. And he was always kind, always. When he talked to you, you knew that he cared about you. Why did people long for Mr. Rogers? I think it's because we don't see that many good people anymore. And Mr. Rogers was good. So people would come to Janot and they would ask him, what would Mr. Rogers say? And in response, he told them this story. In 2019, a woman named Pam Bondi, Florida's attorney general, was about to see a showing of, won't you be my neighbor? As she arrived at the theater, a group of protesters surrounded her and yelled at her for putting forth legal challenges to the Affordable Care Act and for not speaking up against family separations that were taking place at the border of the United States and Mexico. And they called her a horrible person and they spit on her and they tried to provoke her boyfriend into a fight. So she went into the movie, she trembled the whole way through it. When it was over, the protesters were again waiting for her outside with their phones to record. 
and one woman yelled, would Mr. Rogers take children from their parents? Would Mr. Rogers take away health insurance? Pam Bondi, shame on you. The protesters were using Mr. Rogers to do something that he never would have done, humiliate and hurt and make a human being feel worthless. Here's how Juno put it in his article. Quote, it's obvious that Mr. Rogers would have been saddened by our country's continual refusal to provide health care for all of its citizens. It's obvious that he would have been devastated by the cruelties committed in our name at the border and shaken by our lack of mercy in all things, particularly by our policies towards children. But what he would have thought of Pam Bondi's politics is one thing. What he would have thought about Pam Bondi is another. Because he prayed for the strength to think the same way about everyone. She is special. And there has never been anyone exactly like her. And there will never be anyone exactly like her again. And God loves her exactly as she is. The people using his name didn't really want to follow Mr. Rogers or do what he did. They wanted to use Mr. Rogers to do what they wanted to do, which was tragically something that Rogers himself would never have done. And if this is true about Mr. Rogers, how much more true is it about Jesus Christ? We like the idea of Jesus. We like that he existed and helped people and challenged those awful religious leaders. We like the idea that he once lived and he once did those things. We don't as much like the idea that he is still disrupting our way of doing things now. We'd rather use a version of Jesus to beat other people up. As we move more and more into interacting through screens and social media, it's getting harder and harder to remember that the people we're talking to are people. It becomes easier to work in generalizations all the time, to condemn anti-vaxxers or to shame the woke media, to malign the MAGA hordes or to tear down the liberal trolls so that we feel self-righteous and vindicated. Yet I'm convinced that with all the authority and power of God, Jesus is still coming into our comfortable systems and still breaking rules and violating our laws so that people that we ignore and despise and look down on can be healed, both body and soul. For me personally, it gets real when it comes to the way I view other Christians. Those, claiming, those who aren't claiming to follow Christ are easier for me. I don't expect them to represent God because they don't claim to represent God. It's easier for me to have grace and compassion on those who are disconnected from God because they're disconnected from God. How can I expect them to live with God's kindness or forgiveness or grace? It's harder for me to have compassion or kindness for those who claim to be Christians and yet do things that I think misrepresent Christ. Those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th carrying Christian flags in one hand and assault rifles in the other. People who use God's name as a moral sledgehammer to shame and humiliate people with different sexual orientations or political views. And what I see in myself is ugly because I have compassion for some people, but then not for others. I'm passing judgment. I'm using Jesus as a moral sledgehammer to pound down the people who I think use Jesus as a moral sledgehammer. And I don't think that's what Jesus wants from me. I'm no good with a sledgehammer. I'm dangerous with a sledgehammer. I think what Jesus wants is for me to love people and all people, period. To welcome them into the neighborhood, so to speak. 
or perhaps into the commons. It doesn't mean that I, or maybe we, could I use, start using we? It doesn't mean that we ignore people's choices or endorse all of their opinions or agree with everything they say or do. But it does mean that the primary thing that they should receive and feel from us is not condemnation or anger. The primary thing they should feel and receive from us is that they are loved, incredibly and deeply and miraculously loved by God and by Jesus through us. You know, sometimes I read passages like John 5 and I see myself as the broken man in the story, just in awe that Jesus chose me and healed me out of all the people. This week, I've read this passage and seen myself in the judgmental leaders, feeling defensive and kind of angry because Jesus is doing something that challenges me. Jesus is doing something in God's name that makes me think twice about my life and the choices I'm making, that asks me the questions. This is Jesus. This is what he does. And then the question is like, what are you going to do in response to what Jesus is doing? Pass judgment? Follow Jesus. My prayer is that I, that we, will follow Jesus. That we might be wise enough to see the laws of this land that need to be broken and break them in the name of God. That we might see how our customs and our practices have replaced the life-giving love of Jesus with empty rules. And that we might line up to tear those things down so that someone else can experience God's healing body and soul. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you are such an interesting person. In one moment, you can heal this man. In that same moment, you're challenging the rules and the authorities. You're breaking people's stereotypes. You're forcing them to confront the ways that they are not living as you would want them to live, that they're missing the point. They're missing you. And Lord, I know that we are every bit as capable of missing you as any of these first century Jewish leaders. So I pray, Jesus, that you would give us humility, that you would give us the ability to be reflective and responsive, to be flexible and nimble, to be open to the idea that we might be missing something about you. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get sucked into what seems like the temptation these days to pass judgment left and right, to cast someone aside and forget about them and to feel good in the process. But instead, Lord, you would ask us to follow you, which would actually make the other person feel good instead of ourselves always. I pray that for the strength to do this and the courage to do this in Jesus' powerful name, knowing that as we do so, we are following you. For your sake, we pray. Amen.